Hey everybody, my name is Pastor Nick. Uh, a really, really warm welcome to you uh, in the room and also to you guys online. Uh, we're in part seven of a series on the book of Revelation. Um, over the course of October and November of last year, I felt a distinct prompting from the Holy Spirit uh, to speak on Revelation. And uh, as kind of fi- at first, there's a little resistant. Are you sure that's right, Lord? But he kind of persuaded me that this was a good thing to do. And so over the course of uh, January and February uh, of this year, we've embarked on something really quite ambitious, uh, which is a journey through the whole of Revelation in just eight Sundays. Now, I've never myself come across a minister or a church that's preached through Revelation on Sundays continuously for that length of time. I'm sure it's happened, absolutely sure it's happened, but it's not something that I've been aware of in my time as a Christian, uh, and I felt like it was really right and appropriate to redress that. So we opened on the 7th of January uh, in Revelation chapter 1 with John's personal and breathtaking vision of Jesus. He has a vision of Jesus. Uh, This is the same John who wrote John's gospel and three letters. So 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Now this vision uh, comes to him via the Holy Spirit while he is breaking rocks on a Sunday during a a spell of imprisonment on the island island of Patmos. And that's that's a Greek island that still exists to this day and it's just off the western coast of Turkey. Now, this is an imprisonment that John has been put into, and it's come upon him for his refusal to worship a Roman emperor called Domitian. Uh, We learned in that first message back at the beginning of January that apocalypse doesn't mean disaster. It means an uncovering or a revealing. And on the 14th and the 21st of January, we explored Jesus' concerns with the church. There are seven messages to seven churches that are passed on by Jesus in this vision. Uh, and we did a sample of just two of those churches out of the seven. Uh, we looked at the, the, the letter to Ephesus and the letter to Pergamum. And Jesus tells the, the, the church at Ephesus that they've lost their first love. And it's, it, he issues them with a call to reignite that connection, that love connection to Jesus. He then tells the church at Pergamum that they are internally compromised around a couple of heresies linked to a character from the Old Testament called Balaam and a group in the New Testament called the Nicolaitans. And on the 28th of January, we looked at what the throne room of heaven is like. Uh, we got a glimpse with John into the throne room, and we looked at some of the numbers and thrones and crowns that are described in Revelation chapter 4. We called that message crowns. On the 4th of Feb, Pastor Greg brought us a great message from Revelation chapter 5 uh, on Jesus as the Lamb of God, being the only one in the cosmos worthy enough to open the scroll that's get presented in the throne room. And then last week, we did a little bit of a diversion back into history, and we rewound for a moment and looked at what I would suggest is possibly the second most apocalyptic book in the Bible after Revelation, and that's the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And we, we worked our way through two prophecies in Daniel, one about empires in Daniel chapter 2, and one about 70 weeks from Daniel chapter 9. And what we saw was that uh, there's a great case to say that the 69 weeks of the 70 weeks of Daniel, so pretty much all of those bar one, leads us into the crucifixion of Jesus on Friday the 3rd of April, AD 33, if if we're to take the maths of Oxford professor uh, of mathematics, John Lennox, seriously. And I believe there's a great case to do that. 
you know, he's done all the number crunching on this and looked at all the specifics of, of you know, when the, when the call to rebuild the walls of, of Jerusalem starts in the month of Nisan, 444 BC, and he counts it forward, uh, and he takes into account the differences between their calendar and ours, and he arrives at this day. It's pretty dramatic. So today, it's time for us to talk about the end times. Uh, and we've heard some pretty dramatic stuff. You know, Liz read some pretty dramatic stuff from Revelation 20, didn't she? Some pretty mind-blowing things. An angel descends from heaven and locks up Satan for a thousand years. Uh, and that period of time, the thousand years, is mentioned six times in this chapter alone. And that seems pretty significant. Um, uh, so faithful believers who paid a price for their belief in Jesus are seen to reign with Jesus for this thousand years once Satan's been locked up. Uh, At the end of that thousand years, what then happens is Satan is briefly released back into the earth. Then fire comes from heaven and all the forces of evil, the devil, something called the beast, someone called the false prophet, they're consigned to a lake of fire to be tormented forever. Then something called a great white throne judgment takes place and books are opened, presumably in the courtroom of heaven, and everyone who has ever lived receives a judgment according to what they have done with their lives. And anyone whose name is not written in one particular book, a very important book, the book of life, finds themselves sent to a place where God is not present at all. Uh, a place of eternal regret and torment, uh, a place that you and I would call hell. Now, what I'd like to do with our message today is to get to the essentials about the end times so that we will at least know the major ideas. Um, And I've got to say, I did a whole bunch of research on this message. I've probably done more work on this message than about all the others put together. I have read two books. I have studied loads of journals. I have watched stuff online. I've asked people things. I've I've checked out loads of stuff. But actually, the the deeper you go, the more complicated it becomes and the the more contrasting the voices sound. Uh, So what I've done is I've rewound to a kind of high-level view on really what most people see as positions that can be agreed upon. Uh, So I want to start by putting up a table up on the screen for you which describes what most Christians in most churches agree on around the world about the end times. Now this slide that you can see there and the next slide that we'll look at in just a minute um, is available from bcc.life forward slash equip dash me and you can jump straight to that on your phone with that QR code there and uh, the two slides from today you can download those from our website and put them on your phone and and have a a look through. So that's on equip me on uh, that page on bcc.life our website so please please make use of that if you'd like to. So there's a few core truths that is really worth sharing and kind of laying out there as a foundation for what happens at the end of time. And I I don't know that we preach this enough. I think it's very reassuring to hear these things. Let's run through them. Uh, The first one is that Jesus is coming again. Jesus is returning to the earth for his people. Um, He is returning again. He hasn't just come once and then gone away. He is coming back for us. And that's very reassuring. Jesus is coming again. Secondly, we will all receive brand new, imperishable resurrection bodies. Uh, Now, for those of you kind of in your 20s and you're still able to play football, that's kind of like, well, that's negligible. For someone like me, I'd love to be able to get back to that space and be able to run fast and play football again and all those things, plus all the other things God's got for me. I'm not minimizing that. You know, that's important as well. Uh, But we'll all get brand new bodies that work properly and are healthy, and I'm looking forward to that. Number three, we are all accountable to God, and we will all face judgment for how we lived our time here on earth. 
What were the moral choices? Did, what moral choices did we make? What impact did we have in the world around us? Um, number four: Anyone accepting Jesus will live forever with God in person, in heaven, and then on the new earth. Number five: Anyone rejecting Jesus will live forever. Will live forever where God is completely absent, i.e., hell. In the afterlife, there will be no more sin, no more suffering, no more death, and no more Satan. Amen to that, church. That will be really, really great. Uh, you know, I sometimes wonder if we lifted that filter off the world, like just for a day, what the impact would be to us. It would be just astronomical, all that just by itself, you know, not having all of those difficulties. And number seven, God makes a new heaven and a new earth for Jesus' followers to live in at the end of earthly time. Now, most Christian believers in most mainstream Protestant denominations around the world believe these things. Uh, and we're pretty much agreed on them. I will just add that the Roman Catholic Church also teaches that after death, there is a holding place for our souls called purgatory, in which followers of Jesus have the opportunity to become more fully cleansed and holy than they were in their lives. And that's over a duration of time that typically matches the amount of cleaning up needed. So if, if things are pretty grotty, then you're going to spend more time in purgatory. If it's only a little bit bad, you'll spend less time in purgatory. Now, Pentecostals, and that's you and I in BCC, uh, and, and the Protestant church more wide than that, around the world, we wouldn't believe that. And the reason we don't think that purgatory is there is it's not really mentioned in the Bible. And also we believe that Jesus makes us righteous and acceptable to God from the moment that we decide to, cho to choose to follow him. So there isn't an extra piece of work that Jesus needs to do on our soul once we then leave this physical life and go, go to be in heaven. That's not, we wouldn't say that that's necessary. So we don't believe that. Um, let's have a look at what our Elim movement says. BCC is part of a wider group of churches um, uh, called the Elim Pentecostal Church. And uh, they have a series of statements about what, what we believe. Uh, and they make two particular statements about the return of Jesus and the end times. Now, I've put these uh, two statements on our YouVersion events. I'm going to read them for you in just a moment, but they're in your event notes there. Um, uh, and uh, you can follow those. And uh, if, in fact, guys, if you jump back to the... the oh, yeah, it's great. Thank you. If you follow that QR code there, you'll get to the YouVersion event and you'll see that link there. Um, BCC, as I say, is an Elim church. We're part of Elim's global network of churches. There are around about 550 Elim churches in the UK and around 3,500 Elim churches globally around the world. All of them would subscribe to our 12 foundational statements of faith. Uh, and uh, you can read all 12 of those uh, from that link. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk, uh, talk us through just the final two as they relate to the end times. But just so you know, if you came on our membership course, you would get a chance to work through those 12 statements and ask questions about them and, and kind of get your head around those. But we're not going to look at all 12 of those today. That's going to take too much time. We're just going to focus on the final two. So foundational belief number 11 out of 12 says this. We believe in the personal, physical, and visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ to reign in power and glory. And then foundational belief number 12 of 12, the, the very last one says, we believe in the resurrection of the dead and in the final judgment of the world, the eternal conscious bliss of the righteous and the eternal conscious punishment of the wicked. Now those Elim foundational beliefs pretty much echo that blue table we just showed you earlier. 
Uh, Let me just sum those up in really plain language. Jesus is making a return to the world at some point in the future at an event called the second coming. It will be in person. It will be him in the physical. It won't be a kind of floaty vision or a hologram or something seen virtually. It'd be possible for everybody to see him uh, for real. Everyone who has ever lived will be raised to life again, and they will be subjected to God's judgment of how they lived their lives. Those whom God judges to be righteous, from them knowing Jesus in a personal relationship with him, will ultimately live with God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit forever in a new earth. Now, those whom God judges to be wicked, from them not knowing or even rejecting Jesus, will live in another place, a place called hell, which is full of torment and regret and in which all traces of God are completely absent. Uh, And I just want to say to you, there's a couple of other doctrines about hell, which I think it's really important to explain. Elam and BCC as a church, we we don't believe in something called annihilationism. Now, annihilation means uh, destruction or bringing to an end. And this is a teaching that says that because the pain of hell is just too cruel to envisage for people, instead, people just cease to exist altogether. You know, their consciousness kind of, it's like it comes to the end of the record and then it stops and that's it. Now, we don't believe that because we believe that the soul is eternal. Uh, And that's why it's so important that people start to follow Jesus because then it diverts their soul away from hell and it diverts it towards towards heaven. Um, what this teaching also uh, avoids or, or spells out is something, something else that we don't believe in, which is universalism. And the idea of universalism is that really everybody just gets to be in heaven anyway, and in the end, uh, and wicked people kind of get let off and forgiven for the, the bad stuff they've done. And if their heart attitude is totally against Jesus, it kind of is overcome somehow. Uh, we don't believe that either. Uh, we believe in two definite places and that people exist forever in those two definite places uh, in the afterlife. Let's take a moment to define a couple of really key words as we get into the specifics of our end times understanding. I want to tell you about two words, millennialism and tribulation. Uh, They're pretty long words, but let me try and define them. Millennialism uh, comes from the word millennium, which means a period of time exactly 1,000 years long. Uh, You may remember all of our calendars switching over on New Year's Eve 1999 to 2000, some 24 and a bit years ago now, and that's the point at which we started a brand new millennium. Um, Anyone here know the singer Robbie Williams at all? Anyone here heard of him? Yeah, you can can admit it in church, it's fine, you can do that. Uh, (laughs) He released a song in 1998 called Millennium, and he released that song because he was anticipating and celebrating the end of one millennium and the beginning of the next. Uh, Just another thing for you to to, to pick out from from culture, Um, if you ever see a date stamp kind of coming up the credits at the end of a BBC program, and it starts with MM, that refers to 2000, because M in Roman numerals uh, is the, their letter for 1,000 years. So you, when you see MM together, you will see that means 2000, then it'll have you know, XX, whatever, for whenever the, the program was actually produced. So you'll see that at the end. That refers to millennium. Let's also define that other word, tribulation. The tribulation is a period of time in which the sinfulness and the decadence and the selfishness and the depravity of people everywhere reaches a kind of crescendo, like a real maximum point. It reaches its fullness. 
The tribulation is going to be characterized by disturbances in the heavens, natural disasters, terrible plagues, horrific wars, and various aspects of divine judgment. And we would see some aspects of the tribulation could very well be be, uh, being portrayed for us uh, in a series of these divine judgments from Revelation chapter 6 through to chapter 16. Uh, And the descriptions there are given in this really kind of powerful and figurative language. Um, The tribulation could well include the appearance of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the seven seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. And these are representation of God pouring out his wrath against sin and evil and wickedness on the earth. Or more accurately, allowing people to just be wicked without any help uh, and how awful that would be. So the millennium means a thousand and tribulation means a whole bunch of trouble. And that's kind of a helpful way of understanding it. Let's try and understand a bit of a timetable for the end times and what happens. And I'm going to give you three main views of the end times. These are called pre-millennialism, a-millennialism, and post-millennialism. And I think the guys will put a slide up, thank you guys, to explain how these work out. And I've divided it into three layers. This is, again, if you scan that QR code, you'll be able to get the original photographs of that for your phone, and you can have those and look at those. Each of the prefixes, those little words that sit on the front of millennial, um, means a particular stance or view of of the thousand years that uh, Liz read for us from Revelation 20. So pre means before a thousand years. A means not a thousand years, that we're not really thinking it's a thousand years at all, it's just a long period of time. And post means after a thousand years. And they all talk about how the kingdom of, kind of, Jesus' kingdom is going to appear. So I would say to you that sincere, genuine, born-again followers of Jesus who are totally saved, and this might be people sitting in your row next to you, would potentially have one of each of these three viewpoints, and they would be legitimate. They're not an illegitimate view. They're not invalid. So, you know, if you're down the bottom there, post-millennialism, and then your mate on, you know, on the seat next to you is pre-millennial, you know, that, you're both saved. This is, not an, this is not a heresy issue. This is just a difference of opinion that flows from differing interpretations of Revelation chapter 20. Now, my aim today is to give you a high-level picture of all three, and then also I want to... Uh, Say that you've got that room to be, uh, you know, to choose the interpretation that you think is right for you, but also to call us to be polite and kind to those Christians that have a different view from us. So that's just always a, a good practice to have. Um, I would also add that Revelation 20 is probably the most single debated chapter in the Bible. Just right out there just you know of all the different contentious passages all the different open you know different openness to different kinds of interpretations revelation 20 i think is right at the top there there's been so much written uh, on this particular chapter um now what i'm going to do is i'm going to go on and tell you what most pentecostal believers think and believe uh, and then also what i believe because i think it's helpful that you know what your pastor thinks because that's that's useful isn't it But you're not obliged to agree with me, and I'm okay with it if you don't. Um, So if I was going to define premillennialism in just two words, it would be this. Future kingdom. In other words, that thousand years represents a future kingdom that's coming at a distance in the future. Uh, And that first view on the top of the graphic there, uh, number one, um, is premillennialism. And what happens with that is that Jesus returns to earth before the thousand years that were read out for us in Revelation 20 by Liz just now. 
Now, we're not actually told in the Bible when Jesus will return to start this whole process off, but we are told to be ready for the Lord's return. You know, you can think of a whole bunch of different messages, can't you, from the Gospels, the parables, where Jesus says, hey, guys, be ready because you don't know when the hour is. You know, if we knew when the thief was going to break in, we'd have been waiting for him. Um, that, that's how he, he kind of pictures it. So we have to be ready, but we're not told specifically when. As we get nearer and nearer to that time, however, things get more and more difficult, and hence why I've put those kind of small scream emojis on there, because they get bunched as we get towards the end of time, um, and things get harder in this view of the end times. But when Jesus does return for a second time, in this major worldwide event that we might call the second coming, all believers who have died... Uh, plus, so who have died already and, and, and uh, uh, you know, we've had funeral ceremonies for them all or what have you throughout the ages, plus all those believers who are alive at the time that he returns, both groups get caught up with uh, Jesus uh, into the air and are taken into heaven to be with Jesus for a short time. And this is something that we would call the rapture. Uh, let me just uh, read to you a passage of scripture that's actually immensely reassuring from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 to 18, where Paul describes what will happen uh, and from which we get this teaching. He says this to the Thessalonians, uh, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, you and I, when we reach the end of our lives, we're going to be raised again. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the, in, in the clouds. So that's all the present people and all the people who've died in the past who have ever believed in Jesus. The two groups meet together in the air, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, that's, I think that's a very encouraging and helpful statement because it kind of says what, what we saw in the book of Acts where Jesus gets lifted up into the sky in front of the disciples who are left, you know, left on the ground is kind of what's going to happen to all of us as believers uh, at the point where Jesus makes a return. Um, I also think this process at this point also includes the instant transformation from our old, tired, and perishable, perishable bodies that are wearing out into our new imperishable resurrection bodies. Let me just read you another short passage from 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul explains this to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 51 to 53 say this. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this, incorruptible, for, sorry, for this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. So that's the kind of process that happens at the point of Jesus' second coming. Then, in the premillennial position, or the, the top line, the top group there, the, the top view, the seven-year tribulation period starts, and that's represented by that kind of big scream emoji up there in the middle because it's the really tough time. Now, there is a lot of discussion about whether Christians go through that tribulation period or not, 
But I, I for one, happen to believe that they don't. I think that we will be with Jesus in heaven for a short time while the tribulation is going on here uh, on earth. Now, some also see this this seven-year period of the tribulation as the time when God will complete his discipline of Israel for missing or ignoring Jesus as Messiah. In other words, there's a separate plan for the nation of Israel that is unfolding at the same time as this. Now, premillennialists would see some of the things that were predicted in Daniel 9 that we discussed last week, such as a, a thing called the abomination of desolation, which is a sort of a, a, a very nasty being that kind of sets himself up as a, as a god, if you like, in the temple. They would see that as taking place during this seven-year pe- seven period, during the tribulation. And in fact, what I did in my message last week from Daniel 9 was I suggested that a a perfectly valid and sound interpretation of Daniel 9.25 allows for some of the things that he predicts, that Daniel predicts, to have been fulfilled in Jesus' time, and yet some of the things to still be left over for a future period in this final 70th week of seven years. And this is what this period is about. So during this seven-year period of tribulation, or extreme trouble, a figure called Antichrist rises to lead the whole world. So we'll have like one world leader who who becomes kind of president of everyone. And it'll be a truly horrible period of time. There'll be blasphemy, lawlessness, selfishness, deceit, but also powerful signs that seem as though they're coming from God, but they're not, which lead people astray. Now, if you think about it, in this view, if all the Christians are gone as well, then that general water table of goodness and righteousness that exists in the world right now, that takes a big, nose, big nosedive and it's exited out of here. Can you imagine like, the world without the church right now? What would happen to all of our food banks? What would happen to all of our mercy ministries? What would happen to all of our prayers? What would happen to the general righteousness that shines out of you because Jesus is on the inside of you that all of your mates that in your workplace watch and actually admire, even though they don't say it? That will disappear during this period. After the tribulation, Jesus and the believers then return to earth in their resurrection bodies and the believers will reign with him in Jesus' kingdom of the saints. That's all the believers that have ever existed for a literal thousand-year period here on the earth. Jesus will be king and in charge. Satan is locked up during this thousand years and only gets released for a short time at the end after which he's then thrown into the lake of fire forever after a final battle. And that's what that, that big emoji there is, Satan trying to have one more go uh, at the world to try and destroy it. This is then followed by something called the great white throne judgment. And, and at this point, all the dead are raised. So that's all the non-believers as well. And everybody gets judged at the white throne judgment for how they responded to Jesus and what they did with their lives. If people lived before Jesus, in other words, before the time of the cross, the judgment will still be fair because God will be able to, to assess whether they trusted him or not. And that will, be get, that will get credited to them as righteousness, just as it's described about Abraham in the book of Galatians. So don't be worrying too much about people who came before the cross. They are judged by the same fairness as people after the cross. After the white throne judgment, God creates a new heaven and a new earth, and we see that described in Revelation 21 and 22, so the next two chapters of uh, Revelation. So premillennialism, which I've taken some time to describe on the top there, is the position adopted by many Pentecostal churches, by most Elim ministers, and also by myself. That is the position I would take. I have a preference for that position. 
Now, the reason we, we do that is because Pentecostals tend to have a view of Scripture being literal and authoritative. And they would usually see a thousand years literally as, well, it's a thousand years, and it wouldn't just be like an allegory or a figure of speech for a long time, uh, particularly if it gets repeated. If it was just a one-off, maybe there's a bit more room for interpretation, but actually it appears six times in Revelation chapter 20. Now, that way of reading scripture would sit in parallel to the way in which many would take the day and the evening and the morning of Genesis 1 to plainly describe a 24-hour period. And so there's that literalism. There's a principle of reading scripture, which is, if it's plain and simple, take that reading, take that meaning, that's fine. If it's really hard to take that plain meaning, look for a deeper one or an allegory or a kind of a picture underneath that. But if it says a thousand years, especially six times, do you know what? It's reasonable to just go, well, the Lord meant us to receive a thousand years. And, and there we go. Um, when Elam was founded in 1915 and in its early years, you know, we're an Elam church. We trace our roots back to that. You could not actually become a pastor in an Elam church unless you were a pre-millennial, unless you adopted that top position there. And I've, in the, the, the large amount of research I did for this message, I actually found a reference to an Elam minister being stood down from his position in a church in the 1950s for admitting that I think he had the uh, amillennial position instead, and, and he, he lost his credential, he wasn't able to minister anymore. Now, those days are kind of gone because there's a bit more flexibility about what people believe, but, you know, uh, Elam was pretty straight down the line, pre-millennial, uh, and many of its ministers, including myself, still take that position. Um, just to give you a kind of a hook onto this from your own experience, maybe, premillennialism is also the position uh, made popular by that Left Behind book series. Anyone read those or aware of those? So that would be premillennial. Um, let me just jump briefly into uh, the other two. I'm not going to spend as long on these two, uh, basically because I've done a lot of the explanation already, and these are just variations that I'm going to tell you about. If we were going to, 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 uh, to define amillennialism in just two words, it would be kingdom now versus kingdom future, which is premillennialism. Okay? In amillennialism, there's a more figurative and non-literal view of the thousand years from, Revela from Revelation 20. What these Christians would say is that Satan got bound by what Jesus originally did on the cross and that the thousand years really just means a very long time. It's like a, a, a phrase to say ages. Okay? Now that would, that would then say that Jesus began his thousand year reign, uh, kingdom reign, in the hearts of all of his followers straight after he rose from the dead. But that that thousand years simply meant ages and ages. And in fact, it's now stretched to 2,000, hasn't it, in that view? And it could continue to stretch and maybe go to 3,000. We don't know. The tribulation would not be a literal seven year period. Uh, but it would be spread right across all the awful events of history. And that's why we might see so many of these kind of mini scream emojis. But they do crescendo towards an end. And you can see they kind of get more condensed. And that's designed to show you that there's a kind of downhill slide in the moral fabric of history as we get towards the end times. Um, amillennialists would see some of the things predicted in Daniel 9 that we talked about last week such as the abomination of desolation, has already having occurred in events like the sacking of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70. Um, they would say that Jesus' thousand-year kingdom is a symbol for the church age taking place over a really long time, but not a literal thousand years, and that it is happening right now in the hearts of all the believers around the world, like you and I and all the churches right now. 
when Jesus comes back, that would be his second coming and also the end of history. And that's the point at which we would have the final battle with Satan, the white throne judgment, and the beginning of the new creation. Now, I've got to say to you, uh, although, I mean, a lot of that sounds fairly appealing, and there are many famous theologians and very sharp, intelligent people uh, and Bible scholars who adopt the amillennialist position including people like St. Augustine and Martin Luther, various different well-known characters from Christian history. They take that view because they see that revelation is highly symbolic and therefore it's unwise to tie too much to this idea that a thousand years literally means a thousand years. And that's where it hinges. That's, where, that's the, essentially the difference between those two positions. Do we take it literally? Do we take it figuratively? So amillennialism, that middle one there, is an absolutely valid stance to take, but it requires a slightly less literal interpretation of Revelation 20. Let's just jump finally into the last one. Post-millennialism, if we define that in two words, it would be kingdom growing. Kingdom growing. In this view of things, there's a really long period of time, uh, definitely longer than a thousand years, but the thousand years would mean that. It would just mean a, a great age. And basically what happens in post-millennialism is that Jesus doesn't come back until the kingdom of God has grown better and better and better and stronger and stronger and stronger and more and more effective and the gospel gradually reaches and spreads pretty much everywhere and Jesus comes back at the end of that time um, because the church has just been super successful over a long period of time in winning everybody. And so the kingdom reign of Jesus begins with his his ascension and and the release of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The world gets wonderfully influenced by uh, Jesus through all the believers and because of the good news of the gospel. And what the post-millennialists would say is they would look at Jesus' teaching about things like the parable of the yeast or the mustard seed and they would see, well, actually what's happening is the church is slowly growing and incrementally forcing its way just by goodness and righteousness spreading like yeast through bread and eventually there's going to come a time when there's no corner of the earth that isn't filled uh, with the good news of Jesus and, and, and completely chocker with great Christians. Um, it's really a view that says that there's a progressive victory and an expansive influence of Christianity over time. Now, there isn't a seven-year tribulation period as such because things get gradually better and better and better. And that's why I've shown on this bottom line that you know, it's, it's pretty grotty in the past, but it gradually gets better. But you do still have the end of history where Jesus comes back uh, there's the battle, a final battle with Satan. Um, the great white throne judgment takes place for everybody. And then there's the beginning of the new creation. So that's, those are your key differences. One of the difficulties with that final position is that other parts of the New Testament say that the last days are going to get really, really tough. And actually, if we look around the world right now, you know, the church is doing okay, but it's not rampantly successful yet, is it? It's not the vast majority of, of, of belief, you know, beliefs in people around the world right now. I would still say Christianity is you know, uh, vying with lots and lots of other belief systems right now. It's certainly not prevailing, but we could, legitimately, we could be in the middle of that period and that there's going to be a, a big increase in the future. We don't know. I'm going to ask the worship team just to come back up and I'm going to bring my message into a land, uh, to, to land right now and, and, and just kind of draw uh, some conclusions. Um, I hope that the broad picture about the end times is something you will find helpful. Um, I've got to say to you, as you delve into it more, it gets more complicated and more confusing. 
And so I think it's probably helpful to kind of sit at that level and pray about it and say, God, what do I, what do I think? Show me. Show me what, what, which view to take. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to close in, in, in the way that I think Jesus intended John to receive this vision of Revelation, um, which was primarily an encouragement. Jesus received, uh, sorry, John received this vision from Jesus because he was imprisoned, he was struggling, he couldn't see the end, and Jesus wanted to say to him, hey, John, things are amazing at the end. Things turn around. I'm coming back for you. Things are going to get a load better. There's a different reality coming. Have hope. Have confidence that something new is around the corner uh, for your life. This is how the plan of things is going to unfold, so therefore, be assured. And that's what I think, uh, you know, is really going on for John as he sees this vision from Jesus. And that's the encouragement I want to bring to each of us. Be assured that Jesus, the, the Lord God, the Holy Spirit, has a concrete plan for the end of time in which you are included, in which you will be involved, uh, and in which you would then end up living uh, with God uh, eternally, uh, which is the best place to be. And, and as I was kind of thinking through my message today, I, I just genuinely felt it's just a really appropriate message to offer an opportunity for anyone in the room to make a decision to follow Jesus because, you know, who knows when the time will come? And I know that Christian pastors have been saying that for centuries, but I would really recommend that if you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, today would be a great chance to pray a prayer and to step into the kingdom of God. And also, it hugely benefits your life right now. As soon as you start giving Jesus leadership of who you are, loads of things change for the better. I know that for a fact. I'm someone that road tested the other, the other approaches to life and found they just did not deliver. And when I submitted the steering wheel of my life to Jesus, things got loads, loads better, dramatically so. I would never, ever go back. Jesus is awesome. Uh, definitely put him in charge of as much stuff as I can all the time. He's just great. Um, so I'm going I'm to lead us in a prayer and, and the media team are going to put that prayer up on the screen and I'm going to ask you to stand with me and if you pray this prayer as we pray it, please do, do just stand, thank you so much. Um, if you pray this prayer with me and, and this is something you really mean for yourself, um, our assistant pastor here, uh, Greg, is going to just pop up to the back just into that area of the top lobby where the blue paint is. He's just going to be there. He's got some things for those of you, a gift for those of you who make this decision today. So let's just bow our heads and let's just pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry for everything that I've got wrong. Please forgive me for being separated from you and from other people. I believe that you died on the cross to take away my sins, that you rose again on the third day, and that you are alive and with me now. I receive you now into my life as Lord. Please lead me and help me to live for you from now on. Thank you for your gift of eternal life now and forever. If you're with us today and you prayed that prayer either for the first time or after a long time of being away from Jesus, just while we're worshipping, I'd like you to take a courageous step and I want you to just go and pop out and see Greg and get that gift from him and, and he'll take your name and he'll pray with you. It's such a great decision and there are a whole bunch of people standing around you who've already made that decision and who will testify to you personally what a great decision it is to make. Um, but we're going to sing now. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, team. Bless you guys.